Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. Yes, indeed, we've made it out of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 2. Now, if you will go ahead and you can take open your Bible app or uh, even better, the, the primary Bible that you use for study, if you have it with you, and just turn over to the book of Colossians and just, just take a quick look and remi reminder of where we've been. And then we're going to read Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through uh, seven, and we're going to talk mostly about verses one two, through three this morning. So as, as Colossians opens up, like many of Paul's epistles, there's this greeting. And then what Paul immediately celebrates is even though he hasn't been to Colossae, even though he hasn't been to this church, he knows that Jesus Christ is working through this church. He knows that the gospel has taken root and transformed this community. And now they are a redemptive presence in their city. And what is interesting is, 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 is the way he knows this. It's not just about reports that the gospel was preached. If you'll recall, Paul goes out of his way to emphasize that the reason why he knows the gospel is legitimately bearing fruit in that community is because they have a reputation for loving one another. So it is the fruit of love that Paul looks for as the endorsement of the gospel truly taking root inside in a community. So he celebrates this, and then he prays for their ongoing spiritual growth. Success, uh, or success is not really the best word, but growth in the gospel calls us to pray for more growth in the gospel. There is a perpetual hunger and a perpetual longing, just as we sang this morning, for more of you, God, more of you. And in fact, I think the Apostle Paul would quite enjoy singing that tune with us because that's exactly what he prays for, is that there would be, that you would, you would experience a process by which you get to know God more and more and more. There, there is, there isn't... Um, there isn't kind of this place where we are like, we kind of coast. Now, religion will encourage us to coast. Religion says, once you do whatever ritual we tell you to guarantee your spot in heaven, then we will tell you what to do to kind of maintain until you pass on and become worm food. Um, but that is not the perspective of Paul. There is this intended in the heart of New Testament faith is an adventurous spirit that is never quite satiated even though it's satisfied and that's that it's a paradox but it's the reality of the pursuit of faith so we praise for that but then we have some of the most important scriptures in the new testament and that's found in colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20 um, what theologians would call the high christology of the book of colossians because that's when paul drops the bomb of this magnificent vision of christ and what he has done and the mystery that has been veiled until the fullness of time and christ has come and the miracle is this is that christ is over all it's a revelation that this is all about christ because Christ is the one through whom everything that was created has been created. And then this remarkable message that says that God in Christ reconciled the entire world to himself. That is the good news we are called to proclaim isn't it funny that in the scripture, the, the, the gospel begins 
with Christ, it's about Christ, and it's a celebration of what Christ has done. Modern presentations of the gospel is about the individual being a sinner and what they need to do in order to no longer be a sinner but be, quote, saved so that they go to heaven when they die. So we've made it completely individualized and private when that's not the message of the gospel in the scripture. It is a public message and it's good news for the entire cosmos because God has revealed himself in Christ and has worked to reconcile the entire world to himself and then we move on and Paul begins to talk about his ministry and the way that even though God has done all that needs to be done in Christ to reconcile the world to himself there is a need for ministers of reconciliation to proclaim this message throughout the world and Paul says the only way he is able to do it is that he has learned to cooperate with the energy of God the energy that God deposits in his own heart Paul lives a rhythm where he is connected like consciously connected to the energy of God and he says that I continue to work through this energy or this power that God so powerfully works within me and then we get to Colossians chapter 2 and now we're going to get introduced to one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter and it's for, for lack of a better term I don't think this is necessarily the best way of saying it but if you look at the headings in some of your Bibles and if you read the way commentaries on this passage is organized what we might say is then what we're going to get introduced to in chapter 2 is this Colossian heresy that Paul is writing to warn against and to correct now, we are not going to be able to get into the details of that heresy today because we're going to hang out in verses 1 through 3, but I am going to give you a little preview. The primary obstacle of the gospel is not an individual's besetting sin because Christ has already overcome all sin. It is not the thing that defines us. What we're going to find as we wade into the waters of Colossians chapter 2 is the primary resistance of the gospel are religious obligations created by men. It is the legalism of man-made religious traditions that are going to be the most seductive in drawing our hearts away from Christ. In fact, honestly, besetting sin tends to keep us close I mean, have you ever confessed and said, boy, during that time of trial or struggle or temptation, I felt so close to God. Why? Because those temptations cause us to be more consciously aware of our need for the presence and power of Christ. But what happens with religious traditions is we start to put our confidence in those things. And it seems so faith because the authority structures tell us that's what we're supposed to do. Whereas Paul's revelation is, no, the authority of the Christian faith lies in the Holy Spirit who is chosen to reside in your heart. So it is not a system of external authority being imposed, but it is a matter of, like Paul, learning how to become so conscious of the rhythm of God's energy that I'm living from this awareness that the local point of that authority is right here. When I seek God, I no longer do it this way. I seek God right here because this is where he has chosen to reside. And we're going to look at some more passages that emphasize that in just a few moments. So 
Let's jump into chapter 2. Let's read for context the, the seven, first seven verses as he begins to introduce his polemic or his defense against the so-called Colossian S. heresy. For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you and for, the, for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Thank you, God, for preserving your wisdom in these scriptures that have been passed down to us. May you open up our hearts so that we can see your truth and that you empower our wills to respond with faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to back up. We're going to look at those first three verses here in Colossians. This is where Paul just very bluntly and, 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 and boldly proclaims that the mystery of God has been solved because the mystery of God is revealed and it's revealed in one word. So class, what is the mystery of God? Christ. Christ is the mystery of God. All the questions with, with, with which we struggle all the existential frustrations and, and um, trials that we face, even though there are not always specific answers to all of our questions, the Spirit moves us to the answer, which is Christ. And all that we're confused about God becomes clear when we go back and we look into the beauty of the face of Christ. It's not necessary to become more sophisticated in our theological and philosophical ponderings and coming up with complicated answers that only people with more degrees than Fahrenheit can really understand. That is not necessary because you have deposited in your soul all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom because the mystery of God is summed up in Christ. That's why more I read this, I'm so glad the name of our community is Christ Community Church because it's all about him. So God's mystery is Christ. Questions about the nature of God are found by looking to Christ. Now, this is a challenging ethic because you're going to be reading through your Old Testament or you're going to be listening to a podcast or you're going to be maybe reading a book and you're going to come into conflict because there are lots of people that perpetuate images of God that don't match up to the image of the God we see in the face of Christ. 
So when that happens, when you're confused, that's why God gives us community, which he's going to talk about in just a few minutes. That's why God gives us community so we can reason and seek these things out together. But what I will tell you is this. If you have a doctrine or a picture or an understanding of God that is not endorsed when you see the life of Christ, feel free to shelve that for a little while until you work that out in your soul. It's unwise to perpetuate an understanding of God that is in any way in conflict with what we see in the life of Christ. Because the New Testament bears witness that our understanding of God was veiled to some degree until the revelation of Christ. That's why Christ is the highest revelation of God. That's why Hebrews says in him, he is the exact imprint of God. Who, of God. That's why the New Testament scriptures celebrate that in him the fullness of deity dwelt. That in times past God spoke through dreams and visions and prophets, but in the last days he has now spoken to us through the incarnation of his son. And we were shocked to find out that's the one through whom everything we see that has been created was created. This is Paul's grand vision of Christ, this is what he's celebrating. That, that the mystery, that, that, that the, the nature of God can be understood by looking at Christ. And spoiler alert, if we're doing our job right, hopefully it can be increasingly observed in our lives as well. Because that's what we're called to do. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. We all have access to the riches of complete understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. These are all points that Paul is celebrating. But here's what I want us to focus on this morning because I find this to be remarkable. And it is in some ways opposite of what the discipleship industrial complex tries to produce. So Paul not only says, I wish that you would have complete understanding of the mysteries of Christ, he then goes on to say, and I'm going to tell you how you get there. And the answer is shocking. You get there via encouragement and community. That's what he's going to say. He doesn't say anything about books. He doesn't think anything about extensive studies. He doesn't say anything about memorizing verses. He doesn't say anything about entering in your local church's discipleship program. And again, that is not to say that I think that those things don't have any value. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is we need to start with what the scriptures tell us. And what he says, the way we access these mysteries is through encouragement and community. Does he say that? Well, let's take a look at verse 2. He says, I want, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love. There it is. Hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love, encouragement and community, so that, and so there's a result that happens when our hearts are encouraged and we engage in community. The result is they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the full uh, um, the, the, um, have all the riches of complete understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Think about this. God has hinged your ongoing revelation of his deep mystery of the ages on your willingness to engage in community. Now, this becomes very important because 
Churches tend to communicate, whether they intend to or not, primarily a value of a vertical morality. And what that means is pleasing God is about learning what he likes and learning what he doesn't likes, doesn't like, and, uh, and ensuring that you do more of what he likes and less of what he doesn't like. Vertical morality. And guess what? It's so easy to fake. I can pretend like I'm vertically fine with God. And in fact, I can ignore which is, what is the real morality of the New Testament found both in the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul, which is the Christian faith is to terminate in horizontal morality. But here's the great trick. If I make it about vertical morality and my private spirituality, I can feel more spiritually mature than I actually am. And I can justify my neglect of horizontal morality as long as I can say I'm living in alignment with, with I, what I and my church has created as my vertical morality. Now, these may sound kind of weird, but this principle is extremely important because it is what Jesus spoke out against, and it's also what Paul spoke out against. Paul, Jesus will say this, the law summed up in love your Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbors yourself. In other words, we read that as command one and command two. That is not what Jesus is doing. He is saying command one and command two are the great commandment. That's how it works. They're inseparable. To love God with all your heart means you're loving your neighbor as yourself. So far, if you go to the book of Galatians, when Paul is summarizing this ethic, he even truncates it even more and says the entire law is summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. Like the first two-thirds of your scripture can be summed up in a single sentence. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do you see the vision? What? Religion reinforces his private vertical morality. What New Testament faith and what Jesus and Paul enforce is the fruit of the gospel in horizontal morality. The way I treat other people and myself and my cre and creation. Thank you for that spontaneous applause. Because it's good truth that we're celebrating. Good truth, it's found in Jesus, it's found in Paul, it's found in the brilliance of Queen and David Bowie, right? What did he say? Maybe love will teach us a new way of caring about ourselves. Maybe love will remind us that we're challenged to care about those on the edge of the night. That's why we're under so much pressure. So let's look at these as we, as we get ready to land this plane this morning. We access this knowledge by cultivating an atmosphere of encouragement in our hearts. Their hearts would be encouraged. And secondly, by becoming joined together in love with other followers of Jesus. Joined together in love. What I want us to leave here challenged by is how radically relational the nature of our faith is intended to be experienced, expressed, and lived. It is in returning to the radical relational nature of the ethic of what it looks like to love God. That is what creates communities of people who transform their communities. And so we see here, first of all, we cultivate an atmosphere of encouragement, but where specifically in our what? 
It's in our hearts. I cannot emphasize enough the need for our practice of Christian faith in contemporary America and beyond to move from information back to intimacy. We will die without it. If we continue to put our faith in man-centered organizations of doctrinal statements rather than the ongoing intimacy of growth in the living of Christ, we will continue to move in the way of obscurity, obscurity and irrelevancy. The heart of our faith is not external pursuits of knowledge. We've tried that. It's called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But the way we're nourished is we return to the tree of life. We have to move from the primary means of God's grace being information to recognizing that it's actually intimacy. It's intimacy of walking with Christ. Intimacy is walking with God in the cool of the garden. Remember our tell of two apples is the tell of two spiritualities and it's the tell of two trees. We have to be rescued from the belief that discipleship can be organized, simplified, commodified into a system of conformity where we create the discipleship complex that runs everybody through the same machine and you are in if you are conformed to the expectations, but you're out if you don't conform to the expectations. That discipleship complex is being exposed as the emperor that has no clothes because that system exists only to perpetuate itself. It never gets around to doing the work of the kingdom of God throughout the world. And so we want to be aware of that reality. We want to move from the factory to the orchard, to the garden, and allow ourselves to learn to cooperate with the seasons and rhythms of God's grace so that we can, our roots can go down deep and we can bear real life-giving fruit. Spiritual growth doesn't happen by understanding more information, but becoming more intimate with a loving person. And where can this living person be found? You tell me. In you. That is where this living person can be found. In you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, but I want us to see that this reality is celebrated all throughout the New Testament and in the teachings of Jesus. Let's walk through some of these. Number one, which let me just tell you thinkers who've already looked ahead, we're not gonna go through all the verses on the end. That's just bonus material for you all for your times with the Lord this week. So don't get anxious. We're gonna spend most of our time here this morning. Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of Christ to which you were also called in one body rule your hearts and be thankful. He's talking about the center of our emotions and the impulse of our will, the inner life. This is where the peace of Christ is found is within. Ephesians 3:17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love, then he goes on to continue his prayer. Galatians 4, 6, 
And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's interesting, none of these celebrations of salvation say a word about the afterlife. They're all about the transformation of your identity in the here and now, to moving to becoming a non-striving, restful, peace-filled follower of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.22, he has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. Romans 5.5, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And this is, this is not new covenant. This is old covenant wisdom, but it's still wisdom. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. So you have to be self-aware is what fills your hearts and fills you with hope. Is it Christian doctrine or is it the living Christ? And recognize those two are not the same thing. I might say it even more challenging. And we might say, is what fills my heart the religion of Christianity? Or is what fills my heart the presence of the living Christ? Because as many of you may have experienced, and I certainly can bear witness to, they are not always the same thing. In fact, they often ever are the same thing. Now let's really dive into this. And we're gonna, this is our, this is our deep dive here and we're gonna start crawling out of the plane and going back to you know, lighter thinking in just a minute and you can start revving up for rib crib or wherever you're gonna go. But John 16 verses seven through 15, this is the teachings of Jesus. This is the teachings of your Lord. This is the teachings of the one in whom the fullness of deity dwelt. This is the teaching of the one who created everything that was created and without him, nothing was created that's been created. This is the one through whom God reconciled the world to himself. And here's what he had to say in the final moments of his life with his band of merry men. Verse seven, nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Now, isn't that remarkable? How many times have you sat in church and have imaginary discussions on what it must have been like to be alive when Jesus walked the earth as though that was the better time and now is the lesser time. Well, you were in 100% disagreement with Jesus whenever we indulge those kinds of thoughts because what he says, it is for your benefit that I go away because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come, come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Hone in here on verse 12. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. 
for he will not speak on his own on his own but he will speak whatever he hears he will also declare to you what is to come he will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you everything the father has is mine that is this is why i told you that he takes from what is mine which is to say he takes from what is the father's and he will declare it to you now look at that verse for a moment think about those powerful words because the answer is there it's not a mystery the problem and the reason why we get confused is we want to make other things the answer. We want to make church doctrine. We want to make writing books and listening to podcasts. We even want to make Bible study the primary way that we're led into truth. But are any of those things on Jesus' list? What did he say was our primary gift for leading us on into the ongoing growth of the revelation of Christ. What did he say it was? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who will guide you. But if we replace, if we replace the Holy Spirit with our clever doctrines, then that is what we will look to to define what we're supposed to look like and what we're supposed to do. Do you see what great a deception that has become? What Jesus said is it's better that I'm not even here because once I'm gone, I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is going to be your guide into all truth and your future growth. In the incarnation, Christ was physically localized, but through the omnipresent spirit, Christ fills all things. He's everywhere. Now, he's most closely seen there and there and there and there. But he's also in the spaces we don't see, that atom. But what about the little bitty space between those two atoms? Christ is there. Christ fills the cosmos. And through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who has saturated this entire world, we are surrounded by the love, power, and life of God. It takes religion to get our eyes off of it and get us busy doing the work of the institution rather than the work of our Savior. We've got to rescue ourselves and the future generations of the church from this great deception, my friends. The gift for our growth it's given to us through the life of the Holy Spirit. How do I respond? Here are some suggestions. Be a student of the life of Christ. Pray. And yes, I'm going to say it. If you are someone who is participating in the new covenant, then the next thing you do, you listen to your heart. Now, a lot of folks like to sit, stand before a group of new covenant believers and look to old covenant authority and then place that yoke on new covenant believers. So because of that, well-meaning teachers have taught us to fear our heart. And guess what verse they're going to quote to do it? 
Anybody recall? It's a verse in Jeremiah. You know what that verse says about the heart? It's deceitful and desperately wicked. Who could know it? Fine, I'll say amen to that. But what I won't do is perpetuate the unbelief that we're, submit, we're to submit to that as the final um, declaration of who we are. I will say the gospel invites us to fully celebrate this new covenant by which the foundation of it is the promise that God will write his laws on our hearts. My friends, don't fear the very place where God is most accessible to you. Pray and listen to your heart. And the next is very simple. Do what you're told. Don't, don't tweet about it. Don't make a Facebook post that virtue signals how spiritually much more spiritually mature you are from the rest of us. Don't talk about it. Just go do it. Just do what you're told. And finally, pursue Jesus in community with others. Now, we're going to close here, sort of, but we're not going to go into this. This is the second thing Paul says, that they would become joined together in love with other followers of Jesus. We experience community simply by practicing community. Community isn't spent, isn't experienced by coming to the doors and waiting to see who speaks to us. Community is experienced by being the one who chooses to go speak to others. That's how you engage in community. You only experience it by practicing it. Now I have summarized for your reading pleasure and prayer time later this week, several of the summaries of all the one another statements in the New Testament. Follow the Holy Spirit and obey these commands. If we just only focused on that for the next five years and never even became more sophisticated in our doctrine, you know what? I think we'd be okay. I think we'd be seeing the fruit of the kingdom of God manifested both in our midst and in our greater community. Follow the Spirit and follow the one another's. So, once again, as we close, be a student of the life of Christ. Now, I'm not going to tell you what my first suggestion is for that pursuit because hopefully you all already know it. This particular passage in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Thank you very much, 5, 6, and 7. Uh, be a student of the life of Christ. Pray. Not pray as dialogue, not as monologue. Most of us are taught to pray as monologue and then go on with our day. This is a mistake. Prayer is dialogue. We speak, we listen, we respond. Listen to your heart. Do what you're told and pursue Jesus in community with others. Now, some of you, as I look about on our audience this morning, our congregation this morning, I see that there are some spiritual giants among us. Now, for those of you who are enrolled in Christ Communities Church um, AP sermon, here's the AP sermon. This is your challenge bonus here. In cooperation with the leading of the Spirit, pick two of the one another commands and practice them in your home this week. Pick two 
of the one another commands and practice them in their home. Now, I know when I first read that, you're like, oh, this will be easy. I'll go to work and buy everybody donuts. Yeah, it is easy to practice outside of the home. But it only transforms your soul if that's who you are in your most private moment. So pick those one another's, put them to practice in your home, and ask the Holy Spirit to empower you to do that as an expression of considering others more important than yourself which is one of the one another's.